Yo, yo, what up everyone? This is your life coach, Jacob Sokol, and welcome to WTF Should I Do With My Life. You're about to access a roadmap specifically designed for people in our generation, like you and me, who are looking to figure out how to create a life filled with happiness, success, and a deep sense of purpose, while simultaneously dealing with the challenges of today. Did you know the most popular class ever taught at Harvard was on the subject of happiness? Guess what? We got in touch with the man who taught it and asked him highly specific questions about how peeps like you and I can take the latest and greatest scientific findings on happiness and apply them in our lives. Check out this chat with world-class thinker Tal Ben-Shahar to learn what the number one component of your well-being is and specific actions you can take to rock this. You'll also learn why you need to give yourself permission to be human and how to do this exactly. You'll learn what actually brings us happiness. Hint, it's not the bling bling or the celebrity status. And finally, you'll learn a better understanding of how growing up in a culture of privilege has shaped us and what to do about this. Hey, Tal, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thank you. Yeah, well, I'm absolutely thrilled that we get to connect and just such a huge fan of you and your work and just seeing the impact that it's had personally in my own life, taking some of the principles that you have an incredible way of taking this research that exists out there and just breaking it down into um, a way that the general public can use and uh, and use to raise the quality of their life. And I'm just, uh, again, incredibly honored to chat and trust that we're going to have a great time. So, um, I think it would be really cool if we could start the chat by introducing people a little bit more to you who may not be familiar with you. And I think a cool way to do that would be if you could share a little bit about your story and particularly some of the challenges that you faced as a young adult and how you were able to deal with those. Uh, sure. So um, I find myself at the uh, age of uh, 22 at Harvard studying computer science. I was in my second year then, uh, doing very well academically, doing well in athletics. I played squash on the varsity team before that uh, on the international circuit. I was doing well socially and I was very unhappy. And it didn't make sense to me because looking at my life from the outside, things looked great. But from the inside, it didn't feel that way. And I remember waking up one very cold Boston morning, uh, going to my academic advisor and telling her that I'm switching course. And she asked me what to. And I said, well, I'm leaving computer science and moving to philosophy and psychology. And she said, why? And I said, because I have two questions. First, why aren't I happy? Second, how can I become happier? And it's with these two questions that I got my undergraduate degree and then went on to graduate school uh, asking the same questions. And I actually did become happier as a result of my education within philosophy and psychology. And when I graduated, I wanted to share what I'd learned with others. And that's when I started to teach and to write. Right on. So how were you able to become happier? And what did you, what did you discover about yourself? Why weren't you happy? The first thing, or one of the first things that I discovered was that there is absolutely no relationship between success and happiness. Um, just as there is no relationship between uh, uh, material wealth and happiness. And yet, most people uh, around the world, certainly the, the West, are driven by their desire to, uh, to be more successful, wealthier, to get that next promotion, 
that, that next degree as if that will be the, the, the savior in terms of, of well-being. Um, so I was looking for happiness in the wrong place. In other words, now I'm not against success. I'm not against ambition. You know, I, I'm a hard worker. I want to do well. Um, however, I'm no longer um, living the, the illusion that the next success will make me happy or happier. Um, I know now what are the things that really make us happy. And these are things like uh, um, uh, spending quality time with people we care about and who care about us, things like being physically active and so on. So you say that success doesn't lead to happiness, which is just this, you know, ground-shattering statement that I'm sure a lot of people listening to this chat are going to be like, come on, Tal, really? You're telling me success doesn't lead to happiness? So I think success, the word, is actually a bit subjective, and I'm wondering if your definition of success back when you were a student at Harvard has changed to your definition of success now and kind of to zoom out even a little bit more to say what is the the Western view of success? Right. So, so the Western view, the view that you know, I, I was raised on, was um, that success is the quantifiable type, meaning it's uh, it's uh, it's material wealth that you can count. It's uh, the number of degrees or the your ranking in the organization or the class. Uh, this is quantifiable success, um, and this very often has been equated with uh, with well-being. There's a lot of research showing that when people uh, attain uh, their dream, a goal, they they do become happier, but only in the short term. And you see it with, uh, uh, for example, with professors when they become tenured. You see it with. Uh, um, employees in an organization when they get that raise or, or make partner or become an associate. Uh, yeah, they are happier. However, just for a very short time, they enjoy a spike in their well-being levels. You know, I, I asked my, uh, my Harvard students, and, and I was teaching my classes there at uh, the uh, spring semester. So around March, I would ask them the following question. I said, uh, put your hand up if on April 2nd, April 2nd being the date when they received in the mail their acceptance letter to Harvard. Put your hands up if, if when you got it, when you got that letter, you were anywhere between very happy and ecstatic. And I had close to a thousand students, almost all of them put their hand up. I then asked them a second question. I asked them, how many of you at that point thought that you'd be happy for the rest of your life? Almost a thousand hands stay up because you know they, they had been told by their teachers, parents, by you know, society at large that you know, when you make it, when you get into your top choice college, you, you're all set. You'll get a great job. You know, people will look up to you. Uh, you're likely to make uh, money later on. You'll be made for life. You'll be happy for the rest of your life. So they leave their hands up. And then I asked them a third question. I said, okay, now leave your hand up if today you're happy. I didn't say very happy. I didn't say ecstatic. I said very. I said happy, and almost a thousand hands go down. We live under the illusion. We're driven by that illusion that success will lead to happiness, and it doesn't. The interesting thing, though, is that it actually works the opposite, the other way around. More happiness, higher levels of well-being, leads to more success. 
it leads to being more engaged in our work, to higher levels of motivation, better teamwork, overall more success. So if happiness leads to success, um, and perhaps that's a, a philosophical, personal question that we all need to ask ourselves is what do we want out of life and what kind of meaning um, would, would fulfill us, what are some of the things that actually make us happy? Right. So, so there are a few things. First of all, you know, it is very important how we define happiness. Um, and the, um, the definition of it actually works when, you know, when people pursue that kind of happiness um, they actually do enjoy better overall life, is that happiness comprises both uh, meaning and pleasure. In other words, a, a deep sense of purpose, doing something that we care about that is important for us, uh, as well as enjoying pleasurable, positive emotions overall. And it's the first component of well-being that is the most important, a deep sense of meaning, a sense of purpose. One of the things that's missing most from uh, people, especially young people's lives uh, today. So what is purposeful to you? What is meaningful to you? Is it uh, teaching? Is it being an investment banker? Um, is it spending time with, with people? Is it being one-on-one -on -one with your you know, best friend? Uh, what are the things that provide you with a deep sense uh, of meaning? Another important component of happiness I mentioned it earlier, the most important component of happiness, relationships. Quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. And this is not spending time with our you know, 1,000 best friends on Facebook. This is spending quality time with our, with our close, uh, dear friends, with uh, family members, uh, and so on. Um, another thing, physical exercise. There's a lot of research today showing that regular physical exercise is equivalent in its effect on our well-being to our most powerful psychiatric medication, whether it's in dealing with uh, depression, anxiety, or whether it's just raising levels of happiness, uh, even if we're not experiencing depression or anxiety. Regular physical exercise is what more and more psychiatrists, more and more psychologists are calling the wonder drug because it works just like our most powerful medication. It releases norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine. You know, these are all your, uh, your feel-good chemicals in the brain. Uh, very powerful uh, intervention. And physical exercise doesn't have to be you know, uh, training for the, for the Ironman. As, as little as three times a week of 30 minutes of aerobic exercise, so a total of 90 minutes a week of aerobic exercise uh, has a, a remarkable, remarkable effect. Um, another very important component of happiness, which is very often overlooked, is what I've come to call the permission to be human. And um, I thought about it actually the first year when I was teaching a class on happiness. Um, I was having lunch one day in one of the undergraduate dorms, and a student came up to me and said, Tal, may I join you for lunch? And I said, sure. And he sits down, and then he says to me the following. He says, Tal, I hear you're teaching a class on happiness. And I said, yeah, that's right, uh, positive psychology. And he said, you know, my roommates are taking your class. And I said, that, that's wonderful. And then he <laughs> said this. He said, but you know, Tal, now that you're teaching this class on happiness, you've got to be careful. And I said, why? And he said, you've got to watch out. And I said, why? 
And he said, because if I see you unhappy, I'll tell my roommate. And I actually used that the, the following day in class. And uh, I, I told my students, and I said to them, you know, the last thing in the world I want you to think is that I experienced a constant high. Um, and, and, the, and the last thing in the world I want you to think is that you will be experiencing a constant high by the end of this year. There are only two kinds of people who do not experience painful emotions such as anger, disappointment, envy, sadness, anxiety. Two kinds of people who do not experience these emotions. They are, one, the psychopaths, and the second type of people who do not experience painful emotions are dead. So if we experience painful emotion, it, it's actually a good sign. It means, you know, we're not a psychopath and we're alive. Good place to start. Um, and here is the thing. The problem is that when we do not give ourselves the permission to be human, when we do not accept that these are natural human emotions, then these painful emotions only intensify. In other words, what I'm saying is that one of the pillars of a happy life, paradoxically, is accepting, uh, allowing ourselves to experience painful emotions at times. They're natural, they're part of, of who we are. When we reject them, they only intensify. If we look at the idea of negative emotions and the suppressing of them kind of intensifying, I'm curious that, you know, I stop and I think, well, don't we feel emotions based on how we interpret events? And is it possible that we can accept our emotions and experience them, but then maybe reframe the experience to have a more empowering meaning so that we don't continue to feel these emotions in the future? Um, absolutely. So perhaps the most important work uh, over the last few years that has come out on this topic is work by um, the Virginia professor, Timothy Wilson. Timoth Timothy Wilson has, uh, came out recently with uh, a book by the name of Redirect where he looks at uh, many interventions that were introduced over the last 100 years or so. And what he shows that many interventions, in fact, most interventions, most programs, whether it's youth programs, whether it's workplace programs, most of them fail. The ones that succeed overwhelmingly are about creating a different interpretation of a situation, a different interpretation of our life, in fact. For example, if following a traumatic experience, we wait a month or two months, and afterwards we write about the traumatic experience, and through the writing we get to understand what this was about and perhaps even find meaning uh, in, in what we experience, perhaps find a, a way of growing through that uh, experience. What he found was, was that the people who did that were able to overcome uh, their, their, their trauma simply because they were able to reframe the situation. You know, many people talk about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, there is also another response to, uh, to trauma and that is post-traumatic growth. And we can experience growth uh, very often depending on the interpretation, how we perceive what we had experienced. So what are some actions and tools that 
we can use when we say, okay, I, I'm experiencing anger, I'm experiencing frustration, disappointment, and I want to give myself the permission to be human, and I want to do this in a way that works, in a way that um, that I can I can do it in my life and, and not freak out. I can experience the anger without going AWOL and, you know, making a mess out of my work situation. So how, how can we give ourselves and the people around us uh, the permission to be human? So let me introduce uh, a very simple uh, concept here, which is what I've come to call active acceptance. Active acceptance. The, the first part is actually the acceptance part, and that is accepting the emotion, meaning experiencing the emotion. Um, if I feel uh, envy toward my best friend, not fighting that envy, not, not telling myself, oh, I'm a bad person for feeling it, that would be rejecting the emotion, but saying, okay, I don't like this emotion. I would much rather feel generosity and benevolence uh, um, through and through, but I'm experiencing envy. It's a human emotion. That's okay. So not beat myself over the head for, for, for experiencing it, just letting myself feel it. So that's the acceptance part, the permission to be human. The second part could include the reframing. For example, um, public speaking. Many people have a, a fear of public speaking. So the first step would be accepting uh, the sphere, accepting the emotion, saying, well, it's natural. Many people have it. It's fine. The second step would be the reframing, looking at public speaking as an opportunity. You know, I'm an introvert. I'm shy. When I stand in front of an audience or when I think about standing in front of an audience, immediately anxiety uh, comes up for me. So what do I do? Again, the first step is I accept it, and the second step is I reframe the situation. I say to myself something to the effect of, what an opportunity this is. What a privilege this is to be sharing what I care about most with others. And that immediately, immediately puts me in a, in a different place, in a place where I, I get much more excited about what I'm about to do, what I'm about to share with, um, with the audience. So the first step is accepting the emotion, experiencing it. The second stage would be to cognitively reframe, to reinterpret what is, uh, what is about to happen. Another thing that I can do is to act in a way that I think is appropriate. So I want to go back to, to the example I gave uh, a minute ago of envy. So the first step would be to experience the envy rather than to reject the emotion. The second thing would be to go ahead and act generously and benevolently toward my best friend, even though I'm experiencing the envy. You see, there's nothing wrong, nothing immoral, nothing problematic about an emotion. An emotion is not good or bad. An emotion simply is. What matters most is my behavior. In terms of behavior, there can be moral or immoral behavior. In terms of emotion, there is no moral or immoral emotion. There is simply the emotion. Yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible. So it's, uh, it's interesting to kind of have some formal conversation and formal talking about the science behind emotion. Kind of growing up, we never really are taught here's how to into it. here's here's your emotions here's here's why you're feeling this way here's what to do with those feelings the same goes for happiness right we're never really formally taught here's how to be happier when you when you do these things you'll you'll feel this way 
Um, so I want to zoom out a little bit and look at society at large. It's one of the things I'm most passionate about with this conference and with these conversations is addressing the issues that exist as a culture, both and, and, and in this stage of our lives, coming into young adulthood, going through that identity quest of figuring out who are we and, and what are we here to do. And I, I think there's some universal challenges for young adults, no matter really what, um, what era you grew up in. But I also think that there's some particular cultural challenges that exist for this generation right now. And I'm curious to hear what you think some of the most significant current cultural challenges which are unique to this generation are. And and, uh, and how that's affecting our happiness. Arguably, the, the greatest challenge facing the young generation is technology, uh, its use and misuse. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of technology. You know, the, you are hearing me, the people are hearing me now thanks to technology. I can look up almost anything uh, on the Internet. That, that, that's great. That's terrific. Um, However, there, also, there is also a, a downside, a serious downside to technology. And let me, uh, let me discuss um, the most significant one, and that is that it, is, it has become a substitute for real flesh and blood relationships. So we have the you know, 100 friends on uh, on Facebook, people we, we, we interact with, with, we chat with, but that comes uh, in place of the, the, the face-to-face, you know, being together in the same room, playing together in the same uh, metaphorical or real sandbox, and, and we pay a high price for not having that in our, in our life anymore. We pay a price in terms of our well-being, because, as I mentioned earlier, the number one predictor of happiness is time we spend together with people. And second, we also pay a very high price in terms of our levels of uh, empathy and compassion. There's a lot of research showing that, that people develop less empathy and compassion because they are not spending real quality time together. And that means that we're paying a high price in terms of uh, the, the warmth, the depth of our relationships. So what are some of the actions and boundaries and habits that we can put into place to effectively deal with this new challenge of technology and how it skews our empathy and our relationships? Put time aside for uh, uh, real meetings. And equally importantly, when you are with people, switch off technology. In other words, you should disconnect in order to connect. You know, when, when, when we are with, uh, with other people and have our phone on at the same time and are uh, answering emails, um, this, this is not uh, allowing us to, to cultivate uh, deep relationships. We, sh- we, um, we, uh, we, we enjoy relationships, but on, on the surface, to really get to know people, to really spend time together, we need to be focused on them, not on 17 other things that, that we're doing at the same time. The other thing, the other challenge that, that, that comes from technology is that we've become uh, 
sedentary. You know, I, I grew up in in Israel and in, in, in Israel, in the Middle East, in around the Mediterranean region, we have a siesta. So between 2 and 4 p.m., you know, the streets are quiet, people are very often napping. But at 4.00 p.m., when I was a kid, um, what, what we did was we went outside and, and we played, you know, soccer or we played hide and seek. Uh, you know, we ran around the, you know, the, the street, the field. Today at 4 p.m., whether it's in Israel, whether it's in the U.S., whether it's in China, people are no longer, uh, kids are no longer running around. They're sedentary. They're in front of their computers. And, and we pay a very high price for it. You know, moving our, our fingers, that's not adequate exercise. We must get out. We must get out uh, to the street, to nature. Uh, we must, we must uh, run. We must walk um, because our nature demands that, that we do so. So if One of the main high quality... Okay. Sorry. Sorry. I just want to add something. One of the main reasons for the rising levels of depression... Uh, among the uh, uh, young generation, whether it's kids, whether it's young adults, one of the main reasons is that we're not physically active. Um, this also explains why there is so much um, uh, attention deficit disorder or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. We do not exercise enough. We do not uh, exert ourselves enough. Our nature demands that we do so. Yeah, so if creating high-quality relationships is one of the biggest predictors of overall well-being and quality of life, what are a few, maybe one or two or three um, best practices that we can, uh, what are some best practices that we can use to actually increase the quality of the relationship? I, I know one thing you said is to, when you're with someone, actually focus on them. But I think that we're never actually formally trained in or, or really offered much advice on how do you go about creating a, a deep connection, an authentic connection with someone that, that really means something and isn't a superficial social, you know, or internet interaction, but what are maybe one or two or three best practices that we can actually use to create great relationships? Yeah, so, so the first thing we, we need to do is have realistic expectations. You see, the, the model that most people have for the ideal relationship is the model we get from, from the movies. What do we have in the movies? We have uh, people... Uh, meet one another, very often it's uh, love at first sight. Then the movie is about uh, conflict and how the, 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 the relationship, uh, uh, they fall apart. And then toward the end, they get together, you know, they kiss, they make passionate love, and they live happily ever after. <laughs> now, this is the structure that most people have of what the ideal relationship is. But in fact, it's misleading. In fact, Movies end where love begins. And this is having the right expectation about relationships because relationships, the way they look is, you know, there's the honeymoon phase, we fall in love, things, things are, are, are great. And then challenges begin. And then conflict uh, begins. And that's okay. That's part of any relationship. But if our expectation is that there shouldn't be conflict, that we should live happily and smoothly ever after, after we fall in love, then this is a, a sure prescription 
for failure because the first challenge that we will face will mean that we give up because we mistakenly believe that, oh, this must be the wrong person for us if we're fighting now, if we have a conflict, if we disagree about some important issues. No, on the contrary, this is the beginning of, of potentially growth within a relationship. You know, it's a little bit like going to the gym. You need to stress the muscle to push the muscle in order for it to grow. It's the same in a relationship. After the honeymoon phase, after the initial uh, bliss, if we want the relationship to grow, uh, we have to uh, accept and work through disagreements and conflict. In other words, have the right expectation about what a long-term relationship is all about. Yeah, so that's an incredible insight. Yes, and, and, and let me just say uh, uh, some, something else which is, uh, which is related to this, uh, to this point. Um, and this is going to sound completely uh, a non sequitur, but, but, but I'll explain. We need to start reading again. Why is that? Why is that? You see, today, the average time that we spend on a, on a web page is about seven seconds. This is the muscle that we exercise in our brain, looking at something very briefly, very quickly, getting in a, a very superficial uh, perspective, understanding of that web page, of the text, of the pictures, and then moving on to the next. This is the muscle that we exercise. We no longer exercise the muscle which, um, which studies something in depth, whether it's uh, a text, um, whether, it is, uh, whether it is people. And as a result of this, we do not learn how to really know a text. We do not exercise this muscle, and consequently, we also do not exercise the muscle of really getting to know a person. So going back to reading long novels, getting into the character, really understanding uh, a text that we are reading is actually a good exercise uh, for life, for really getting to know people in depth. In fact, for really getting to know ourselves in depth. So it sounds um, unrelated, but it's very much related. Learning to, to read again, to, um, to delve deeply um, into, into a character fiction or, or real, so that we can delve uh, deeply into ourselves as well as others. So what are some of the questions that you ask yourself when you're engaged in this process, whether it's being in a relationship with a significant other or being in a relationship with a colleague or just a peer, or even when you're reading the novels and you're, you're going through this process, I'm, I'm always fascinated by how people talk to themselves in their heads and what questions they ask themselves that lead them to where they are, and I'm curious if it would be a, a great, if, you know, it'd be great if you could share a couple of the questions you would ask yourself if you were getting to know someone better, um, what would your thought process be during this time? Um, I would begin by asking, uh, where are, they, are their strengths? Meaning, uh, what are they good at? What, where, where are their talents? I would ask, what energizes them? When do they come alive? You know, William James, back in 1890, um, asked a, a beautiful question. Uh, he said, when is it the real me? So when do you feel that it's the real you? When do you feel that it's your partners 
real self? Is it when they're discussing you know, the environment? Is it when they're talking politics? Is it when they are you know, watching a sports game? When do you feel that they come alive and join them there? Share these moments, even if, if that is not the thing that is most interesting for you. You know, passion is contagious. And once we, we engage people in their areas of, of personal uh, passion, the things that they love, um, you know, we, 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 we are very often swept along. And we often very sweep others when, when we are there. But we first have to identify these areas and, and you know, enter them, be there for them, with them. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And I would love to just zoom out a little bit, and I want to honor your time, and I know that we're almost at the end of the chat, but there's another question or two I wanted to ask from a, a kind of high-level perspective of what's going on in this culture. And I think that on, on some level, um, living in today's culture, it, it is a culture of privilege for a lot of people who are listening to this conversation. And I'm curious if you feel like that culture of privilege in some way affects our feeling of worthiness to actually live a, a deeply fulfilled, happy life. Yeah, so there's actually research on this, on what, has, uh, what is called the underprivilege of privilege, meaning the price that people pay for, uh, for being privileged. Why? So Sunia Luthar, who is a professor at uh, Columbia University, has shown that one of the greatest challenges of kids or young adults who are well-off is that things uh, have been too easy. So they didn't, at a young age, need to struggle uh, to, um, to get a toy or um, they didn't need to struggle to get a car or later on uh, to, um, to, to struggle in school because things were uh, brought to them. And we see it very often. And what's important for, for us to do, when, you know, whether we've been raised in privilege or whether we're raising the future children who are, um, uh, who are going to be, well, perhaps better off than our parents or grandparents were, is not to deprive them or ourselves of the privilege of challenge. Mm -hmm. Not to deprive ourselves or others of the privilege of struggle. And this goes back to something that I discussed earlier about cognitively reconstructing a situation. When we face struggles, not to immediately discard it and say, okay, so how can I uh, get rid of it, or to panic when struggle arrives, but rather, once again, give ourselves the permission to be human, experience the emotion, the, uh, whether it's the, the pain, whether it's the, uh, the fear that we experience at the time, and then say, Okay, this is a struggle. This is an opportunity for growth. You know, one of the mantras that I repeat over and over again to my students and to myself is learn to fail or fail to learn. If you look at the most successful people in the world, they're also the people who have failed the most times. They failed, they got up again. They failed, they got up again. And each time they got up, they were stronger, better off. So to reconstruct, cognitively reconstruct, reinterpret the experience of struggle instead of rejecting it, actually welcoming it into our life, not depriving ourselves of it. And this is how we can overcome the underprivilege of privilege, allow struggle to be part and parcel 
of a, of a healthy and overall happy life. Learn to fail or fail to learn. Right on. Love it. So before we wrap up this chat, I want to ask you a question. And the question is, if you were a life coach, what would be the first three things that you'd get your clients to start doing? The first thing would be uh, to be physically active. The second thing would be to spend time thinking about what makes you come alive. What are you truly passionate about? The third thing, and again, this could be the first thing as well. These are in no particular order. Ask yourself, what are the most important relationships uh, in your life? And then invest in them. Invest in them. Because they are your number one generator of what I've come to call the ultimate currency, the currency of happiness. Now, if I may, just one last thing. And this, in many ways, um, summarizes a lot of the things that I've, I've discussed before. It's also uh, at the core, at the heart of positive psychology, this sense of happiness. And that is the idea of gratitude or savoring. You see, we have treasures of happiness, of well-being all around us and within us. And yet, we so often take for granted uh, what we have. Why? Because we get used to it. We adapt. It's there. And if we're able to take a step back and to be more mindful, more aware of those things that we do have and truly appreciate, take, take a minute and think about the people you care about in your life. Take a minute to, to truly appreciate uh, your health or a good meal. Take a minute to appreciate what you have learned from struggles, from falling down and getting up again. If we take that minute to write these things down, to share them uh, with others, to savor, to experience them, that can make a very big, significant difference in our lives. In other words, what we need to do is to appreciate the good in our life, because when we appreciate the good, the good appreciates. In other words, we have more of it. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute delight and pleasure and just, again, an immense amount of gratitude for the work that you do and how you're able to take these awesome, um, rigorously researched topics and just translate them in a way that is super accessible and um, relevant and applicable for people like myself, for you know any anybody really, and I'd love to leave people with a path that they can continue continue to follow you on. So, if people are interested in engaging in more of your work and uh, staying in touch with you, what's the best way that they can go about doing that? Well, my, my website is uh, my name. It's talbenshahar.com, and uh, I have online courses. I, I have books. Uh, and articles, uh, and um, I hope people will pursue the science of happiness, positive psychology. There's a lot there. Right on. Again, thank you so much. Thank you. Let's take a look at some of my favorite big ideas from this interview. Big idea number one, happiness leads to success, not the other way around. So society teaches us to look for happiness in all the wrong places. We're subconsciously taught that money, fame, and beauty are going to bring us happiness. So we set out to be successful, as society would define it, and try to obtain these objectives thinking then we'll be happy. What's fascinating is research is showing that people who are happier 
perform better, and then are more likely to be successful. In other words, happiness comes before success and brings you closer to it. So how can you be happier now? Well, research shows that simple things like spending quality time with our loved ones, physical exercise, and engaging in activities that we're passionate about have a huge impact on our happiness. Big idea number two, happiness equals pleasure plus meaning. So one of Tal's favorite definitions of happiness is this, happiness equals deep sense of purpose plus experiencing mostly positive emotions. The ingredient that's most important here is the deep sense of purpose, yet this is oftentimes the one that we overlook. We need to find meaning in our life in order to experience a deep sense of happiness, and contrary to popular belief, happiness isn't just about feeling good and experiencing positive emotions. That's happiness hedonist style. True happiness is about having meaning in our lives and experiencing more positive emotions, but it doesn't mean that negative emotions don't exist. Which leads us to the next big idea. Big idea number three, give yourself permission to be human. Some people think that happiness is about avoiding unpleasant emotions, but that's not true. While we do want to focus on increasing positive experiences in our life, we don't want to pretend that there's only going to be good times. It's inevitable. Sometimes stuff happens and you're not going to feel great, even if you're a positive psychology professor like Tom. When this happens, we want to give ourselves permission to be human. In other words, we want to acknowledge that we're having negative emotions, and that's normal. In fact, the only people who don't experience negative emotions are psychopaths and dead people. Tal suggests a way that's very powerful when dealing with these negative emotions, and he calls it active accepting. It consists of two steps. The first, we want to allow the negative emotions to exist and take our time to feel them rather than resist them. If you're having a hard time with that, just remember there's no such thing as an immoral emotion. There's immoral behavior, but emotions can't be moral or immoral. They're just emotions. The second step is to reframe the situation. Can you see this as an opportunity for growth? Can you find some meaning in it? Research shows that people who've experienced traumatic events are much more likely to overcome their trauma if they're able to find some meaning in it and use it as a tool for growth. Another step you could take is to allow the negative emotion to be there and then choose not to act upon it, but act in a way that feels more in alignment with your values. For example, if you're envious towards your best friend, can you not act from a place of jealousy, but act from a place of generosity despite still feeling jealous? Soul Sibling, thank you so much for rocking with us. I appreciate you, and I appreciate that you're using your time and your energy toward making yourself a better person and the world a better place. So if you'd like to keep in touch, I'd love it if you subscribe to the podcast, and I'm excited to deepen our relationship, to get to know each other better over time, and to see how I can help you solve meaningful challenges and create your most fulfilled life. We've got a great community over here, and we run retreats all over the world. We've got people who connect with each other and support each other in living the most fulfilled life. And what I'd suggest for your next step is to grab a copy of The 12 Things Happy People Do Differently. It's a scientific-based approach 
to happiness and there's a lot of great wisdom out there but this in particular is researched back from some of the world's leading positive psychologists in the world and it's super grounded super practical how you could do these 12 things that happy people do differently and rock it the article's been shared over a hundred thousand times on facebook and there's some magic in there. So in order to grab a copy of that, you can go to thankyoujacob.com. Sounds simple, and it is. Thankyoujacob.com, and uh, grab that immediately, and I will keep in touch through personal emails that I send out a couple times a month and all that goodness. So for now, sending you lots of love. Keep it real. Follow your heart, but bring your head. Peace.